Lena Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. This week, Josh Lappin, an environmental historian studying at the University of Oxford, has returned to join the anti-dystopians to discuss the politics of climate change and technology corporations ahead of COP26. You can catch previous episodes with Josh called Nationalized Gmail about climate change and infrastructure on our previous episodes by following the links below. Also linked below is our new supporter function, where you can help support the production of the anti-dystopians, such as one of our first contributors, Tatiana from Los Angeles. You're listening to the anti-dystopians. So hi, everyone. We're back again today with Josh Lappin. So hi, Josh. Thanks so much for being here. Great to be back. Really pleased to do it. So let's get right into it. Um, COP26 is coming up in a couple of weeks and uh, tech companies, of course, are very excited. They're saying that they're going to help solve the climate crisis. So let's just start off with a you know real easy question. Is it true? Do we need the tech companies and are they harming or helping the climate crisis? Yeah, well, I think there's, there's two possible questions there. Uh, First, can they help us address climate change? And second, can they help us solve the diplomatic problems inherent in the COPs? Uh, and to think about that first one, I think the answer is absolutely, but not in the way uh, they tend to prefer. Uh, the way that these companies can help solve this two decade long negotiating impasse is to use their political and lobbying power in the com- countries where they operate to push for political resolution to incentivize and encourage and support governments around the world who hold negotiating leverage to bring that leverage to the side of climate action. And that's not something we, for the most part, see these major companies doing in relation to these negotiations. They would rather use the UNFCCC process as an opportunity to showcase their uh, up and coming products, basically as a sales conference with a climate theme to it. And sometimes it's really helpful uh, actually, when one of these technologies is a genuine climate technology, for it to get that extra spotlight. But I don't think in any case we can see that as these companies really working in a serious way towards solutions. Um, so as often with climate change, uh, these companies are thinking technically because that's how they make their profits. Uh, and in so doing, they're neglecting and they're asking us to neglect their political clout, which is actually the thing that can make the biggest contribution. Zooming back out to that question of, you know, can tech companies actually help us with the climate crisis? Um, I think the answer is much the same. Uh, There are a variety of technologies that can accelerate climate progress, that can unlock new uh, strategies of decarbonization, uh, that can fill gaps that we frankly do in some places still have in our solutions. But by and large, we have the technologies and the systems we need to decarbonize. Uh, We can take the electricity sector, for example, one of the kind of classically considered ones, we can take that 80% away, no problem, before we really start to run into fundamental constraints in what we know how to do. Um, And so these companies, you know, talking about various solutions, they are gonna contribute and, you know, private enterprise has contributed. Uh, 
But fundamentally, this is a problem of political will, as anyone in a developed country has seen over the last 10 years as they've watched their national governments wrestle with whether to take um, even inadequate action. And as always, these companies don't really want us to think of them as political actors, and we have to primarily understand them as political actors in relation to a political problem of climate change. So then thinking about what's going to happen at COP26, who do you think is more like the most important players to get on board? Um, is it states? Is it corporations? Is it is it China or the US? And do these do these conferences even does it matter? I mean, at the end of the day, is this hmm. about internal politics and this is just a summit where we all pay attention for, for one week? So I think you know, at this point, it's very reasonable to be cynical about this UNFCCC international negotiating process that has yielded so few actionable and binding reforms over its almost three decades of existence. Uh, I tend to be an optimist, though. I actually think there are substantial things to be gained by having countries get into a room and, thanks to Paris now, actually report to each other their emissions and then at least discuss, if not commit, uh, to what they can do about it. I think there is something positive to that. Um, you know, who, who's the most important player in this process? So as, as an international, you know, diplomatic process, the only parties are sovereign nations, sovereign states, sorry. And so in a way that's the category that is definitely the most important. I think in the past, we've seen that other parties such as states that attend anyways, are able to get substantial stuff done on the side, that uh, the COP process serves a convening function that is uh, almost as significant as its actual formal diplomatic function. Uh, I do think also though, that the COP is this media moment that um, you know, states, countries, corporations, nonprofits all try to seize and to ride off of. Um, and, that means that there's a lot of snake oil always present at these conferences. Um, and for, for, for listeners who aren't totally familiar, it's hard to grasp the scale, I think, of the, what, what this UNFCCC negotiating process has become. Um, there will be tens of thousands of people in attendance. It will be much more like an industry convention for most people than like, um, you know, uh, a meeting of states. That will be happening in the background, but by and large, this is a convention like any other convention. And all the same caveats and kind of faint praises apply, I think. Within the, within the states, who's the most important? I think as always, it's the countries that are the largest historical and present emitters. And I think we have some reason to be skeptical that those states, especially the United States, the world's largest historical emitter, is going to show up and um, drive much progress or unveil any new commitments. Um, but that's no reason not to hope and not to pressure uh, these countries politically in the, in the lead up to next week's uh, negotiations. Well, I feel a little bit more optimistic. Um, so let's talk about some of the snake oil that might be present at the COP26. <laughs> So, you know, one of the things these tech companies say is that, you know, they, they've uh, committed to, to net zero pledges. Um, so, for example, right, like they're going to they're going to use cloud computing centers or, you know, data centers that use entirely green energy. What's your take on on pledges such as net zero or even things like carbon credits? 
do you think these things which take on the corporation as an entity, a corporation that is green is, is going to be sufficient or, or impactful in terms of thinking about like the holistic systems in place that are causing the climate crisis? Okay. Yeah. Well, the first thing to say is that the climate crisis is a cumulative crisis. And that means that every ton of emissions we can keep out of the air, every emission source we can reduce is a positive contribution in that way. Anything any corporation does is a positive. We can't reject any of it. That said, we can admit that almost none of it is meaningful or substantial when compared to what most of these companies could be doing if they so chose. And I think the unfortunate reality is we have to view most net zero pledges, most carbon offsets and carbon credit schemes as means of deflecting from the actual substantive hard present reductions that these companies can make. And I think the easiest way to analyze this is the vast majority of you know, climate commitments that tech companies and other companies make are pledges about the future. They tend to be non-binding pledges about the future because who's gonna hold these companies accountable? Um, not their stockholders if, uh, if minimal climate action is proving more profitable. Um, but climate change as people are increasingly seeing is a present problem. And that means it requires present actions. And in almost every case, these future commitments are made in lieu of present action. So uh, an eventual net zero pledge that has a target of 2050 um, is good if it happens, but we need to be asking which of these companies can easily and readily do it faster. And we need to be looking and saying, okay, if they've set themselves a target that is years out in the future, are they starting to work on it now or are they gonna wait? Because carbon in the atmosphere, other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere now are more damaging than greenhouse gases in the atmosphere later, because this is a problem that unfolds over time due to the accumulation of these pollutants. Um, to talk about carbon offsets in general, we can go into depth here if you want, or we can skate along the surface. There's been a lot of good work done by a group called Carbon Plan uh, over the last couple of years. Um, but the, the general consensus among the experts on these is that there are almost no carbon offsets, whether corporate or personal, um, that live up to the hype. And the reason for this is they are allowing you or a corporation or whoever is the buyer to make the same trade-off of uncertain future reductions in exchange for certain present emissions. And that's never a trade that we can accept. And just to talk about why carbon offsets are, are so unreliable, uh, when, when they seem great, right? It, it seems like a, a great idea to accept a hard to reduce emission and instead spend some money to target an easy to reduce emission. Um, you have several things you have to think about. First, you have to think about is the proposed intervention this carbon offset is making real and verifiable? Uh, you know, if they say, just to take the, the most common example, if they say they're going to preserve a patch of forest land, are they actually going to do it? Can they actually prevent that forest land from getting longer degraded? Um, then even if that's the case, is it additional? Can you actually say that if not for this carbon offset, that forest land was going to get logged? Because um, if not, then you're just paying to create something that already exists. And something we've talked about in the past is the idea that a lot of companies will take credit uh, for purchasing green energy that is already on the grid. That's not additional. It's good to provide a market for green energy, but if it's already been built, 
then your company's expenditures are not actually driving decarbonization forward beyond where it was without them. And that means they're not actually making a contribution. They're just taking credit for other contributions that have already been made. And then even if you can nail additionality, which is incredibly hard, I should say, then you've still got the problem of, is this a lasting, reliable uh, reduction or emissions prevention? And with the forest examples, we see large swaths of forests that have been sold as carbon offsets in California going up in smoke due to wildfire. Now, that, that's not, you know, in a clear and irrefutable way, purely human agency, but it is carbon entering the atmosphere that these companies said wasn't going to enter the atmosphere. So what now? Uh, does this offsets agency come back to the company and say, hey, you got to pay again? Probably not because they'd lose corporate business. Uh, and so we're seeing increasing amounts of kind of blanks in this accounting. And as time goes on, this already incredibly unreliable scheme becomes less reliable um, and less meaningful. And so, you know, there are hundreds of different programs and, and types of uh, systems that are sold as carbon offsets. Um, you know, everything from this kind of standard forestry stuff to funding changes in agricultural practices to uh, providing clean cook stoves in parts of the world that don't have ready access. Almost none of them are a one-for-one -one reduction. Almost nowhere can you say that you're actually preventing um, the types of emissions that you are emitting. And so we have to take that into account when these companies make these pledges. And we have to always ask of their chosen solutions, those are nice, but why not the solutions that we communally as a society have selected as the most meaningful? And that, of course, is just one way of describing what a government is for, and just another way of saying that we need to put this in the hands of states with the power to uh, check up on these companies and to compel emissions reductions, because otherwise these companies are just going to do what's relatively convenient. And they can't be blamed for that, but we also can't accept it. So another one of the kind of arguments that tech companies in particular, but, um, you know, other corporations in, in general say is this sort of like technological solutionism or climate solutionism. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff Bezos' favorite climate solutionism is <laughs> moon colonization, <laughs> the space colonization. He hasn't specifically said the moon, but you know, this idea that it's very striking that, um, you know, it's crazy. We're going to run out of energy. It's crazy to think of transitioning to solar. You know, it's a lot better for the environment if we weren't even on the environment so let's colonize space um but obviously that's you know the moon the space colonization is an extreme example of climate solutionism there's uh, all sorts of other things that tech corporations claim um to to be doing to help the environment through technological innovation including like you know ai as a way of like being more efficient in your energy use to like finding like metals that are needed or, you know, what have you. Um, so, 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 you know, we've, we've talked about solutionism before, but do, do you think that any of these, um, particularly thinking about AI, do you think any of these technological solutions are meaningful and important? And is there any validity to the tech companies claims that like they can actually innovate certain things around the climate crisis? This is always a funny discussion. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is meaningful and will make a contribution. There are, you know, ways that we can imagine AI making a, you know, a contribution to decarbonization. I think your examples are a good one. I, I think on both the supplier and consumer side, we can imagine uh, various AI functions really increasing energy efficiency. Um, 
but probably not as much as the things we already know we need to do to, to um, increase energy efficiency. And I think that's often the case, almost always the case with the type of tech solutions and in particular Silicon Valley solutions that we're talking about here. There are contributions to be made. There are places uh, like in grid transmission control where increased AI and machine learning will make a big contribution, um, but it's all really second order stuff. All this stuff needs to be thought about it. And there are companies and regulators and all kinds of experts thinking about it and innovating on it. And it is so far down the ladder of what we need as a public and as a polity to be paying attention to. And for the companies, of course, like what they're doing is they're making a buck, right? They're, they've got their solutions to contribute. And the more grandiose they can make those solutions sound, the more money they're going to make off of them. Uh, that doesn't mean we have to listen to their brand. We can kind of nod and say thank you for your AI. Uh, and what we actually need from you is political will and political participation enforcing system-wide decarbonization. Um, that, that's the, the kind of harmless interpretation of this technological solutions. And we, we also have to acknowledge though, that very often factually and historically, as well as just conceptually in the present, uh, focusing on future innovation can be and has been a tactic of delay. It's been harnessed by the fossil fuel industry and continues to be. You'll see ads from Chevron talking about the interesting chemical engineering uh, research they're doing into making you know, gasoline or petrol for cars uh, you know, more carbon efficient. That's great, Chevron, but like no one who actually takes a second to think, looks at Chevron and thinks their real contribution to the climate crisis is going to be, you know, tweaking the chemical composition of petrol. Chevron's real contribution to addressing the climate crisis is going to be ending its entire business model, the sooner the better. And, you know, th there's a real conceptual shift that they're very successful over and over again in making, where they take people's attention on the politics of the present and they use the promise of an easy and painless future solution, some shiny new technology uh, that will take the difficulty and the discomfort out of solving this problem. And they throw people's attention far into the future. And what that gives them is additional months and years of status quo operation today. And they know that, and they're very intentional about this. And there's an entire um, you know, PR complex that has grown up around providing these uh, kind of shifts in perspective. And so while there are a wide variety of technological fronts of technological innovation that can make a big difference, it's not where any of our political attention should be at any point. Um, what we need to be pushing for is the use of existing technologies, uh, some new ones that are already ready for scale and some incredibly old ones that we've given up on because, you know, Western capitalist society over the last several centuries has headed in an increasingly resource intensive direction. And there are plenty of less resource intensive solutions uh, that, you know, port, the portions of the world that are most responsible for this crisis have just abandoned and that we can return to without even that much discomfort. So always, yes, these companies can make a contribution through their new, you know, AI, whatever. Um, but almost never is that the thing we should be talking about, unless you've got a degree in energy engineering. And then like, yeah, it's your job to do the back end stuff. Okay, so then if you were 
I don't know if you would prefer to be CEO of Amazon or Google or the president of the United States. Um, but if you were in one of the, <laughs> governor of California, I don't know, some, some sort of in-between power and, <laughs> um, so, but if, if you were, you know, if you were in charge of either a state or a corporation that was quite powerful, what, what would you, what, you know, you woke up, um, in like some sort of freaky Friday with a climate change twist, what would you do? <laughs> so it much. is Halloween, so. <laughs> so I think, I think I've outlined in my understanding, the main thing that most corporations on the planet with any sort of, you know, financial or political heft can be doing and should be doing and generally are not doing. Um, there, is, there is one other thing to say though on the technological front is there are some technologies out there which are going to be incredibly important and necessary, uh, which have been mostly developed, but which are still either kind of in an early trial phase or which haven't really hit uh, you know, cost curve declines that make them widely adoptable. And there are some companies out there who deserve credit for this, who are spending big money to subsidize the early growth of these technologies. And the big example in my mind is direct air capture, um, which unfortunately because of global inaction is almost certainly going to be necessary at some point to stave off catastrophic climate change. But which is not yet cheap enough that it's easy to figure out politically and economically how it's going to happen at the, at the massive gigaton scale that's going to be needed. And these companies are paying that high per ton cost to get early direct air capture installations off the ground and running and to let them do the type of manufacturing learning that's necessary to start producing these systems at much bigger scales for much lower costs. That's really significant. So one, one technological thing that companies can be doing is thinking about where to spend their money, where it will have the most leverage, not where it will buy them the cheapest per ton reduction in their own carbon emissions, but where they can, in effect, spend the most to make future change and to, to leverage um, you know, the types of developing economies of scale that are necessary. And, and we've seen these patterns in solar panels and batteries and other technologies that are going to help and are you know, dramatically driving decarbonization. And there is often a first mover who is willing to pay a high price in order to enable the technology to mature. Um, with solar panels, that was the government of Germany, um, which went all in on uh, what it called an energy transition and a mass scale installation of solar panels when solar panels were still very expensive. And that guaranteed purchasing power from across Germany really drove solar panel manufacturers to figure out how to produce these things much faster, much more reliably, uh, with greater efficiency within the panel and for much less money. And that has then unlocked all of the vast solar development that we've seen across the rest of the world. And you know, seeing companies like Microsoft or Stripe, the credit card company, which you know for some reason has infinite cash, um, seeing them make these commitments, that is actually really substantial. Um, I don't think in any way it lets them off the hook for uh, lobbying for political action or for their own carbon emissions. But uh, that's much more intelligent than um, you know, Amazon purchasing carbon offset. <laughs>
So what can be done? I think envisioning the political side of this response, um, you gave me the incredibly unenviable position of president of the United States. And as, as anyone who's you know, watching American politics knows, um, two senators are holding you know, a, a vast set of social and environmental and financial reforms hostage for apparently no reason. Um, and so it's probably a particularly bad feeling time to be the president of the United States. But I will say that there's a, a lot that the executive branch of the United States government can be doing that it is to all appearances not yet doing um, that's really important. Um, the Biden administration has really shied away from executive action uh, for a variety of reasons. Executive action is vulnerable to um, being overturned by a conservative Supreme Court. It's, a, uh, it's often predicated on limited or not built for purpose uh, laws that shape what these regulations can be. Uh, it also comes with, you know, real political consequences as both uh, Trump and Obama experienced. They, you know, really suffered from the perception that they were ruling by decree, which they were. Um, and so the Biden administration has really preferred legislation. I think that's been a huge missed opportunity because you know, problem as urgent and sweeping as climate change. I don't think either or is almost ever the right question to be asking. And I think in particular, in the, the difficult political standoff that now exists in Congress, where Joe Biden and the congressional Democrats really notably lack any leverage over Kirsten Sinema or Joe Manchin, uh, the existence of a bunch of well-developed regulations that are ready to go into effect could provide um, a real bargaining chip because um, the main piece of the climate legislation that, has, uh, that Joe Manchin has rejected over the last week is something called the Clean Energy Performance Program. And basically what it does is decarbonize the electricity sector by paying electric utilities to decarbonize at a certain rate a year and then fining them if they don't meet that rate. It's $150 billion in handouts to the electric utility industry. It's very generous. Uh, and he's rejecting it because, you know, for a simple calculus that he and the electric utilities, which are some of the most coal heavy in the country that he represents and listens to, sure, they'd like this pot of billions of dollars of free money, but they'd like even more not to have to do anything at all. And when the choice is between the status quo and inconvenience, they're going to choose the status quo. But if the choice were between a law that comes with generous incentives and a regulation which requires the same decarbonization, but you know, due to the shape of the Clean Air Act, just can't come with incentives, then I think the calculation as a senator looks very different. Um, and I think that that's just one example, but I think there are a lot of places in which more foresight in the use of executive authority can actually unlock legislative solutions, which are more binding and more durable. And in the worst case scenario, which we appear to be facing right now, um, can provide a backstop, can provide a second best means of decarbonization. And when we think about the authority of the federal government, it is vast. And you know, there are a lot of creative people out there coming up with different corners of the federal government where existing authority can be used to drive decarbonization. And the list is incredible and almost none of it's being done. And I think there's some good reasons for that, but we need to expect more out of a president who has, you know, made more indications that he is really genuinely committed to decarbonization than any other American political leader. I'm happy to dig into a couple of examples of those. One that I think about a lot is uh, fossil fuel leasing on federal lands. 
Um, 40% of all coal in the United States comes from public lands and is provided to companies for extraction by the federal government. And the federal government can't turn off that spigot overnight. Um, but there are a bunch of creative solutions that it can draw on to really constrain the supply of coal and to force old coal plants, which are getting by on coal that is leased from the federal government at low prices that were low in 1980, that are now per ton the lowest on the planet by a significant margin. You can force those companies to um, accept higher costs and then in many cases to begin the process of shutting down. Um, Federal purchasing power is another major thing. The federal government's the largest vehicle fleet owner on the planet. And, you know, despite some good talk out of the Biden administration, we've seen contracts signed this year for huge fleets of tens of thousands of new vehicles that have internal combustion engines. And there's just no reason anymore that the federal government, any wing of it, any branch of it, should be purchasing internal combustion engines. Um, and this is an area where not only can we swap out a lot of cars, uh, for low carbon alternatives. Um, but like I was describing earlier with direct air capture, this is a place where the federal government can drive the development of a nascent market, that they can commit to the type of bulk purchases that both allow and force car manufacturers who have been reluctant at best on EV technology to really figure it out, figure out how to make it cheap and reliable and easy to manufacture and appealing to consumers, which is something that American car manufacturers have really refused to do, even though it's clearly in their own financial interest. Um, that's just two big examples. This goes on and on outwards um, to the very you know, limits of the country because the federal government has leverage over almost everything that happens in the United States. I think similar things are true in other countries. Um, I'm, an, I'm an expert in kind of United States aspect of this, but we can certainly see a lot of the same dynamics in the EU. Um, in economies where the state has more of a controlling role, such as China's, there are even greater opportunities for direct enforcement of um, or imposition of a zero carbon economy. But really in no country have we seen political will or political actions at the scale necessary. Um, which means everywhere has to get more creative. You know, to the extent there are political roadblocks, we need to think about how to go around because this is a matter of urgency. That was one of the things I was going to ask you. I mean, one of the the kind of narratives that get pushed um, around the climate crisis is that there's there's no point in doing anything if if China is not on board. And um, I wonder then, especially thinking about this international summit then like interrogating that narrative one, like, is that true? Like, do, do we really need China on board or else, you know, we're lost? And and to uh, what what is the state, um, what is your sense of, of um, you know, the transition to green energy within China? All right, let's be incredibly clear on this. No, it is not true. We do not have to wait for China. Um, this is a 20 year old talking point. This is a talking point that was used by Senator Byrd at the turn of the century to reject US participation in the Kyoto Accords, which was the first major emissions reduction scheme to come out of the UNFCCC process, um, would have implemented a cap and trade program internationally. Um, only when the US rejected it on the grounds that China wasn't gonna pull its weight among other things. Um, most of the world decided not to participate either because what we actually see 
is the U.S. fixates on China, and we can we can talk about the historical xenophobic roots of that, um, as well as the you know geopolitical roots of that, as well as the ways in which um, it's legitimate in in an assessment of China's values and horrific human rights abuses. And we can go on and on about that. Many listeners are familiar, I think, but. Actually, the main obstacle to climate progress on the planet is the United States. If I had to pick a number two, it would be Australia. China's not on the list. Um, The U.S. has repeatedly torpedoed meaningful and verifiable and um, mandatory action on the international level. And I mean, look, let's, let's also be clear. The United States is by far the largest historical emitter of greenhouse gases. This is a cumulative problem that has to do not just with what's coming out today, but what, what's already in the atmosphere. And most of it is ours. <laughs> and that, that means that we bear the greatest responsibility for decarbonization. And yes, it is a collective action problem, which means everyone needs to pull together. And we won't stave off the worst effects of climate change if a major emitter like China isn't on board. But China has made every indication and every commitment to being on board. And it's the United States that hasn't. Um, When you look at the state of China's developing economy and the types of commitments and changes they are making, it by orders of magnitude dwarfs any sort of actual progress the United States has made. China is radically transforming its transportation and um, electricity sectors, just for starters. And that doesn't mean, you know, there there isn't still a vast amount of work to be done over there. They're doing things that in a fully developed Western economy, we just can't accept anymore, like building new coal plants. But that is not what they are. And that is not the historical power position that they are in. And I mean, I just also can't stress enough that this is also a moral problem. And that Americans have this defensive and paranoid attitude when it comes to international cooperation, where they want to see everyone else act in good faith first. In this case, we're ignoring that there have been several decades of good faith gestures by most of the other players at the table. Um, But in the end, this country that likes to talk about itself as the leader of the free world needs to get out in front and just do stuff and trust that other people will, will follow and acknowledge that actually we will benefit from our own action, whether they follow or not. Because decarbonization, even within the borders of the United States, even if no one else follows along, will make us safer and healthier and more equitable as a country. And if you look at who is objecting to China's participation in progress, it's the people who don't want us to do anything. It's the fossil fuel industry. It is coal state senators. And that has been true since the beginning. It was like snapping there. So then to sort of wrap it up and and thinking, um, what is it that is really needed to stop the climate crisis right now? And what can people who are listening do at either a local, national or global level? Not to to transfer from the individual actor to, 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 to emphasize the individual over the collective when this is clearly a collective problem, but. Yeah, but we gotta talk about that because it, it has to be both and. And systems don't change without personal changes either. And I think we've lost some sight of that. What needs to be done? Everything that anyone can think of doing, it all needs to happen at once. We are way behind. It is getting increasingly hard to imagine us hitting the 1.5 degrees C of warming uh, that the world agreed to 
six years ago to stave off literally the 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 complete annihilation of, of entire countries on this planet and even if we do stay below 1.5 degrees as we're already seeing just across this country not to mention the much worse climate disasters that are getting other parts of the world even our current amount of warming is a horrible tragedy um and i say tragedy advisedly because it was avoidable um and so everything needs to happen there is no adequate amount of decarbonization we always have to be pushing further and faster and that means that any genuine solution that someone can come up with needs to be added to the pie. So how do we think about what has to come first? I think increasingly within the US and also the EU and the UK, which I can't throw into that bundle anymore, it's very inconvenient. People have coalesced around the idea that what we need to do is target our electricity sector because first, the electricity sector in many places is the largest, if not the second largest, uh, source of emissions um, but also because a lot of our other sources of emissions can be electrified and so if we can transition those other uh, sectors into dependence on the electrical grid and that electrical grid is zero carbon then we will have effectively unlocked decarbonization of other sectors as well so the primary thing is we need to accelerate the transition of our electricity sector to zero carbon generation of electricity then what we need to be doing is moving systems like uh, building sector and uh, transportation sector onto electricity. And there's some progress on that already, but that needs to accelerate as well. And the transition of those sectors needs to get coordinated. And as always, you have people who don't want that coordination to happen because once that coordination starts to happen, we'll actually realize that there are not just economic costs, but huge economic savings, as well as huge safety, change, uh, safety uh, gains to be done, to, to, to be found in integrating these systems and electrifying them. Uh, and that actually leads, I think, pretty well into this question of what can people individually do? Um, because those follow-on sectors that need to be electrified are areas where people can actually personally exercise a lot of leverage. Uh, but first I wanna zoom out and talk about the, the point that you made that we don't want to highlight the personal over the systemic. And I think that's a really important conceptual development that's unfolded over the last couple of years, that for, for two decades, the climate movement was really hamstrung by a focus on personal action. And it made it easy for people to reject climate action because it's, I think, immediately obvious to people that because this is a global problem uh, that is backed by huge systems over which we have no direct control, personally changing your lifestyle is not going to, on its own, decarbonize the planet. That said, I think over the last year or two, this discourse among people who are climate aware has risked going too far and risked saying this is entirely a systemic problem. It's entirely the responsibility of a couple of large uh, fossil fuel companies and national governments, and that personal choices don't matter in the scheme of things, that they're just insignificant. And I think we really have to reject that too. And we have to acknowledge that both are important and both play different roles. That we have to politically agitate for systemic changes because we by you know, ourselves refusing to buy gasoline cannot force the transition of the, the oil majors uh, on anything like the time scale that's necessary. It just can't be done. But I think it's also very atomized to think that personal action really only, only accounts for one person. And that actually, you know, in a healthy society, we 
we're all part of communities and collective systems. And some actions we take can create ripples and drive um, mindset changes. And you know, a lot of that is conceptual if we want to get very kind of technical and financial about it, though. We can return to this German example where the German state decided to invest heavily in solar panels. You know, Germany's electrical system on its own was not, you know, a massive present, you know, majority of carbon pollution. I don't know the percentage, but I would guess it was well below 1% of global emissions, especially because Germany back then had a lot of nuclear power, which whatever its other faults is relatively low carbon. Um, but what they did do is change the market for solar panels in a way that unlocked uh, affordable decarbonization of electricity se sectors across the planet. And so the actual leverage that Germany had in making a choice that, you know, had they analyzed it by only looking at themselves and their emissions would have seemed insignificant, um, turned out to be really huge. Um, and that's something that individuals, I think, can do as well. And the, the places to look at that are zero carbon technologies that are going to be really important for electrifying fossil fuel systems right now, um, but that are kind of just at the threshold of being cheaper than their, than their carbon intensive alternatives. What do I specifically mean? I mean, electric vehicles. I mean, gas stoves. I mean, gas water heaters and gas air heaters. Things that are present in the lives of most Americans, most British people um, that have a, have a substantial hidden uh, carbon footprint and to which there are ready alternatives that are almost better, but not quite. Um, and that means that anyone who can afford to make this type of choice can actually have a huge impact by choosing an electric replacement, uh, can really drive these technologies past the tipping point at which they start to cement themselves and they start to drive their own adoption. And we start to see exponential growth. And much though I always want to come at climate change from a political lens, this is a real economic choice that people can make that is really, really substantial. So think about it and look into it and whether you can, you know, you're in a position as a homeowner or a car owner, there is no political jurisdiction on this planet which is adequately committed to decarbonization. There just isn't. And that means that everyone who is listening is a citizen of a political jurisdiction that needs their voice to accelerate decarbonization. And in most places, we're lucky to say there are groups that are working on this that people can get engaged with. And you know, I won't recite here all of the means of political engagement that your listeners in particular are probably familiar with. Um, but that really can make a difference. And again, you know, the city or town you live in, you know, isn't isn't a, a major player in the scheme of global carbon emissions, but there are a ton of ways in which they can disproportionately drive change and progress. And we also have to say that, you know, we, we just have to get comfortable with collective action again. And we have to admit that no one of us and no one of our cities and no one of our states and no one of our countries is going to solve this, but it will not be solved without them either. And that means it's morally incumbent upon us to, to get going. Thank you so much again to Josh for coming on this episode of the Anti-Dystopians. 
As usual, all of the books, articles, and previous podcasts mentioned will be linked in our show's show notes, so be sure to check them out. You can also contribute to supporting the production of the Anti-Dystopians by following the links below. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts.